Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Rebecca Kassane and Dr. Sarah Winslow authors of Whose Game? Gender and Power in Fantasy Sports, published in 2020 by Temple University Press. Dr. Rebecca Kassane is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Lafayette College and Editor-in-Chief of Sociology Compass. Her research areas include race, class, and gender, sociology of sport, social policy, nonprofit organizations, and urban sociology. Dr. Sarah Winslow is the Senior Associate Director of the Honors College, Director of the National Scholars Program, and Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice at Clemson University. Her research interests include gender, paid labor, higher education, work-family intersections, and fantasy sports. Dr. Kassane, Dr. Winslow, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Christina. Yeah. So could you, uh, could we begin the interview by both of you saying a few words about yourself? Uh, sure, I'll start. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a sociologist. I'm at Lafayette College in an anthropology and sociology department. I, uh, throughout my research career, I focused on issues of soci- social inequality, as you also mentioned. Um, most of my earlier research has focused on women in poverty, and in particular, their use of social service organizations, how they navigated uh, welfare programs and policies and poor neighbor- neighborhoods, particularly after the 1996 welfare reform legislation. Um, but I've um, also more recently tackled this area of sociology of sports um, and f- still focusing on social isu- issues of social inequality, in particular gender in this book, but also um, also looking at issues of race and class. Um, and so that's kind of the book has kind of come out of a lot of the uh, interest in social inequality issues. But uh, I've kind of taken a departure in moving towards this uh, social so, sociology of sports angle. And um, as you mentioned, uh, this is Sarah. I'm a, a faculty member uh, at Clemson University um, and for the past several years have had primarily an administrative role at the university, uh, directing, helping to direct our honors college and directing our top uh, merit scholarship program. Most of my research has been broadly in sociology of gender and specifically how gender operates um, in institutions and institutional contexts. So my work started out with a focus on gender in families. Um, and I've done a significant amount of research since then uh, on gender in higher education, particularly uh, how um, faculty members use their time and how they allocate that time across the various domains of uh, faculty careers and the work involved, teaching, research, service, uh, with a particular attention to um, gender inequality in time allocation. 
um, and I'm still doing work in that area as a co-PI of Clemson's NSF Advance Grant. Um, and this project was an opportunity to tackle uh, a different realm, a different institutional context by looking at how gender operates in sports. Nice. So how did you, you two come to write Who's Game and what inspired you to write this book? Uh, yeah, so I'll start with that. Um, so I have been playing fantasy sports now for quite some time, and I've always had a huge interest in sports as a regular fan. So I uh, grew up in New Jersey and South Jersey and have always been a huge Philadelphia sports fan myself. Um, I started playing fantasy sports uh Wow, uh, maybe 15 years ago now at this point, or I guess more than that, uh, maybe 20 years ago, um, when my brother was in a league and needed some additional players with him and his friends. And so I started playing fantasy sports, and I started out with just this one league in football, and I started to then expand that and started playing fantasy baseball fantasy golf. I tried fantasy ice hockey for one season. And as I was playing, I, um, as a sociologist, I started really thinking, well, why am I finding this so enjoyable, um, first of all, as a sports fan? And then I also started to get interested in whether my experience as a woman player was generalizable to others. Uh, and so I started to think, well, maybe I'll do a, a little study on fantasy sports um, and uh, see if I can... Um, find out a little bit more about the hobby, find out more how gender and race and ethnicity and class might relate to who plays and the experience of play, playing it. And so I decided to launch this study. And at the time, I was um, thinking I might want someone else to join the project. And Sarah and I actually went to graduate school together and have been friends for a very long time. And so when I was thinking of people who might be interested in tackling this strange um, new project on fantasy sports, I thought maybe Sarah might be interested. And so I turned to her to see if she would be interested in joining the project. And thankfully she was. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pick up there. Um, I'm actually not a fantasy sports player. And I think that has been, uh, it was a, a good thing for the project. Um, Rebecca clearly brought so much background knowledge of um, of fantasy sports as a player and as a fan. Um, and that was really helpful. But there were times where, as we all know, you know, good sociology is sort of asking the questions and thinking sort of outside yourself um, in other ways. And I could do that, I think, a lot more easily because this was outside of, of my day-to-day -day experience. Um, and so I think in, in, in writing the book even, um, we'd be drafting things and I would see phrases that, that I wasn't familiar with and um, would point out ways that we were probably going to need to clarify things and it could bring a sort of different set of eyes uh, to it. And um, as, as Rebecca mentioned, you know, in some ways this book uh, is, is the product of a 20 year friendship. And, you know, when your friends call and have crazy ideas, you say yes. Um, and I was really interested in the gendered, elements of fantasy sports and the extent to which as a sports fan, you know, we know there's a lot of gender inequality in quote unquote regular sports. Um, and so I was interested in seeing whether that carried over into a context where some of the uh, justifications for uh, gendering physical sports uh, are no longer there. Uh, and that sort of was the genesis as, as Rebecca noted, we sort of thought, oh, we'll write an article or two. And, and I think it was oh, a couple years, maybe into the project where we looked at each other, maybe even sooner than that, maybe at our first conference, now that I think back to it, and we sort of looked at each other, and we're like, this is a book, isn't it? Um, and neither one of us had, one of us had ever written books. <laughs> uh, so that also was a, a, a new challenge for both of us. Yeah, I love that story. And I really enjoyed the book. Um, it's it's different. And I had never read, read, uh, read about fantasy sports before. So I learned a lot. Um, so for listeners who also may not be familiar with fantasy sports, what is fantasy sports? And sort of how does it work? And how popular is this hobby? So I'll jump in and take that one. Um, and I think the important point to clarify here is that, you know, in our book, we're focusing on um, traditional fantasy sports leagues. Um, 
And what that means is that, you know, we're focused on everyday players, the sort of everyday individuals who in, in fantasy sports lingo are called managers, and they build virtual sports teams that include real life athletes. And those athletes accumulate points based on their performance in actual sporting events. Um, and as Rebecca mentioned and talking about her experience, you know, these are typically professional men's football, baseball, ice hockey, basketball, um, and they accumulate these points over the course of the, the, the traditional or normal sports season. Um, and so to give you an example, if you're, if you're a manager in a fantasy, um, football league, you might have the roster, you might roster rather the quarterback, um, of the New Orleans Saints. You might have a running back from Arizona Cardinals. You'd have a kicker from a different team, perhaps. Um, and you would assemble as a manager, your team, and that team competes in a league, um, that usually consists of 10 to 14 teams, uh, compiled by other managers. Um, and all those teams have sort of different assortments of real players. Um, fantasy sports kind of started, uh, you know, decades ago, well before the rise of technology, but now with the rise of internet um, and various platforms, it really has become increasingly popular so that the estimates are that um, close to 60 million people play in the United States and Canada alone. Um, and that's about a six-fold increase since just uh, 2005. Yeah, so it sounds like it's a really popular hobby. Um, and that's good because uh, you had a lot to draw off of for the study. Um, so tell us a little bit about the methods that you use to conduct this study and the experience of conducting this research. I'm especially interested in your experience, Rebecca, um, given that you play fantasy sports and you have for a long time. Yeah, um, so it's a mixed and multi-method multi uh, project. Um, so there's both quantitative and qualitative data, and there's multiple types of qualitative data that we draw on for the book. Uh, in all, I'd say that there's probably, you could break down the data into four different sets of data. And so as Sarah already mentioned, where our focus is on traditional fantasy sports league, and most of the data we collected are really focused on getting information from those everyday players and their perspective and their experiences and views on fantasy sports. Um, and so uh, the two probably biggest parts of the data that we draw on um, is the online survey that we did and the um, qualitative interviews. And so the online survey uh, had both open-ended and close-ended questions. So we have, we're able to do some statistical analysis with the close-ended questions and then also do some qualitative open coding with the uh, open-ended questions. And in all, 453 people completed the survey. Uh, the vast majority, uh, close to 400, were individuals who self-identified as either currently playing fantasy sports or having had played at some point in the past. Um, so there were some non-players in that sample, and we do draw on that a little bit in the book. But most of our focus is really on those 400 or so uh, people who said that they currently or formerly uh, had played fantasy sports. And then to get more in-depth information from players, uh, I also conducted interviews with 47 fantasy sports players, 30 of whom were men and 17 were women. Um, and then in addition to that, there's two other smaller sets of data that we incorporate in the book. Uh, the first is we did a content analysis of fantasy sports message boards and chat forums. So basically, for those who aren't familiar, uh, there are all these online spaces where people who are playing fantasy sports can go and pose questions related to the specific, you know, rosters they have about who should I play today in this matchup or something like that and get advice. But there's also these uh, chat forums where people are kind of going on and it might have started because of this fantasy sports involvement to ask a question like that, but then it evolves into people talking about a whole host of other stuff in sports or media or anything else. And so we looked at some off topics um, sections of those uh, forums, and then also some of the kind of other forums, like just daily chatting forums uh, about fantasy sports and analyze those data. And then the last set of data is we, Sarah and I did ethnographic research at a fantasy sports trade conference. And that those data uh, basically are um, 
qualitative data based on our observations of, at the conference. Uh, the conference was about a three-day affair, and the conference really is um, one that's focused at the industry people. So it's uh, a lot of people in sports media as people who are trying to sell various products or market to uh, fantasy sports players, um, and so it's and it's also the industry itself and how they're kind of framing fantasy sports was a lot of what we were interested in finding out when we attended that conference. And so these are kind of the power players, if you will, of of the fantasy sports industry. And so in looking at the data we collected, uh, our data in terms of the respondents very much mirrors uh, the data in terms of who plays fantasy sports. So Sarah mentioned that it's a hugely popular hobby um, with close to 60 million people playing. But what's also important to keep in mind is that fantasy sports players, those everyday players, typically are pretty privileged in terms of their socioeconomic backgrounds. And so they are typically white. They're typically upper and middle class in terms of their education levels and in terms of their uh, incomes. Um, They also tend to be kind of in that range of 25 to 45 or 50 years old. Um, They tend to be married. Um, And so uh, fortunately, our sample of respondents mirrors that. And so we're able to, we think, really speak to kind of that typical average player who also happens to be relatively privileged in terms of their, um, their economic background. And so in terms of like the experience of conducting the research, um, as Sarah mentioned, we, you know, in, in some ways, you know, we have some outsider status here, right? So, you know, Sarah was an outsider in the sense that she didn't uh, play fantasy sports. And that actually was super um, in terms of uh, her being able to take a critical lens to the project, able to kind of focus on, on kind of how we discuss findings and and seeing things that I may not have seen because I am, as you mentioned, someone who's played a long time and is really close to the data in a lot of ways. Um, and that did give me some, you know, be- that was beneficial in a lot of ways to be so close because I could speak the language, right? So when somebody was talking in the interviews about uh, certain aspects of the play, I understood what they were talking about. I was able to build rapport with them very easily. I was able to recruit well um, for the study because I knew the outlets by that people would be um, using to get information about fantasy sports and so I could advertise the study. And so that was really helpful. I'm also white. I'm highly educated. I'm a professional in terms of the work I do, as is Sarah. And so we were also able to kind of have a certain rapport with the respondents and understand the data in a way because we kind of shared a lot of the same kind of background as a lot of the people who are participating. But I think what's really key is that, you know, Sarah and I are both women and uh, the majority of fantasy sports players are men. And so that actually created some opportunities and also perhaps some difficulties um, in the data collection process. Um, So just as a couple examples, I found that on the chat forums um, that I was advertising the study or some of the men I interviewed uh, would often question my expertise. They'd ask questions like, you know, one of the oftentimes the first question they say, why are you doing the study? Why are you out to get fantasy sports? <laughs> Stuff like that. And so they were questioning the motives I had for doing the research. Um, and so I found that I oftentimes had to do some explaining that I'm a sports fan. I like fantasy sports. I'm not trying to attack fantasy sports players. Um, and because of that, I think sometimes some of the people might have responded to the survey in ways that were kind of defensive. Like they thought that I was trying to have these gotcha questions in the survey, which I wasn't. Um, And I also think that probably because, especially again, for the men talking to me as a woman, there might've been some hesitancy to answer questions in certain, you know, because they were worried about being coming across as um, uh, sexist or misogynistic or whatever. And so sometimes they would even kind of talk in ways to say not to sound sexist, but, and then say something really sexist or something like that. And so that was kind of part of that experience that I had as a woman doing this research is having this kind of questioning, which actually was kind of interesting because it told me something about, you know, the women's experiences playing in general, because here I am as a researcher um, and authority doing this research on sociology sports. And I was still getting pushback from a lot of people in terms of what my motives were and whether or not I should even be doing this research. And so the positive of that was that in the interviews, I feel like I could understand directly oftentimes what the women respondents were feeling and what they were experiencing. And I think that they felt very comfortable talking about those issues that they were um, experiencing while they were playing in their leagues. Um, And 
that really, I think, was super helpful in, tr- in kind of not only in, in terms of the types of questions I was able to ask, but also how I was able to analyze the data and 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 how I was able to to see how my own position as a woman researcher who was also kind of upper middle class, uh, I could see how that might be affecting how the data, um, we collected what the data was, but also what we were able to see and what um, we were arguing. And that made us, I think the book, a stronger book because we were able to think about that throughout the process. Yeah, for sure. So I want to go ahead and jump right into the content of the book because there's so much good stuff here. Um, So you talk about how sports are a site for the production, reproduction, and maintenance of gender and masculinity. So what traits uh, are valued in the world of fantasy sports, and how does this connect to gender and masculinity? So maybe I'll start with the the general kind of background stuff, and then maybe Sarah can jump in and talk about the traits in fantasy sports and how they support kind of a gender project. you know, one thing that I think most people understand is that uh, regular sports is very much tied to masculinity, right? And so um, it is, you know, regular sports, and by regular sports, I mean those sports that, you know, you actually go out and participate on a field of play, um, not fantasy sports, are, you know, definitely this site for, you know, producing what gender is, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, for reproducing previously understood notions of gender, for maintaining gender um, and gender hierarchies. And so, just as a little historical context, um, this idea of sports as being a key way of demonstrating manhood is pretty modern in the United States context. Um, and Michael Messner, a sociologist, a sport um, scholar, has kind of argued that there was this crisis of masculinity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that really contributed to the rise of organized sports and physical activity as core leisure pursuits for men, but also core ways for men to demonstrate manhood. And won't go into detail on this, but a lot of what he talks about is how the world was really changing to that time. And, you know, men's labor was becoming more rationalized and we had the urbanization and we had the closing of the frontier and we had other things going on. Women were asserting their power in different ways. And that all of that led to a lot of traditional male controlled forms of masculinity to be weakened. And so men were looking for new and additional ways to assert their manhood and sports organized sports in particular developed during the late 19th and early 20th century as a way for men to be able to say, okay, we're physically more powerful than women. We're different than women, right? So it's supporting this kind of binary understanding of men and women as different and also very much opposed to one another. And it's a way to say that not only are we physically dominant, but we're also kind of mentally tough and things like that. And so organized sports do that for men. Um, We talk about how sports for boys and men are basically requisite gender training. So men and boys are learning through organized sports what it means to be a man. They're learning that they should be sacrificing their bodies and using them as weapons. They're learning to be aggressive. They're learning to be mentally and physically strong, to be competitive, uh, to be dominant over others. And that they're learning all these things. um, And and as they're doing these things, they're reinforcing those very same things, that masculinity is being aggressive, is being mentally and physically strong, is being competitive. And they're also learning a key thing um, that gender is about being different, right? So masculinity only makes sense in relation to femininity and um, that men can assert manhood by saying, we're, this, this is what we're not. We're not like those women. We're not weak. We're not fragile. We're not, um, um, we're not uncompetitive. And so sports provide this key way of doing that. And what's really interesting is that sports not at this point, men don't need to play sports or embody these physical ideals to actually garner masculinity port, points. They can also get those kind of benefits of the athletic successes of pro athletes by just associating with them through things like, you know, becoming a sports fan and rooting and cheering for that sports team. And so by sitting on the couch, um, if they know a lot about sports, they can still reap those benefits, right? And so that's kind of just some of the larger context of that. And certainly it's a contested terrain still um, because women are parts of real sports. They are fans, they're athletes. And so as women are participating, they're also pushing back on some of these notions of gender. Um, And so that's kind of some background and Sour now can probably talk more specifically about what traits are valued in the world of fantasy sports and how that relates to some of these gender issues. 
Yeah. So, so one of the things we do in the book is we sort of locate fantasy sports relative to what we know about, um, you know, traditional or regular sports as, as he notes the, the, um, the sports that you play, you know, um, or you're, you're watching on TV. Um, and also, uh, you know, sort of position it as this newer type of fandom. Um, and the interesting thing is that to me, there's this paradox, right? Like, so on the one hand, fantasy sports fandom, it kind of broadens your fandom because you are paying attention to athletes on a variety of teams and that therefore games being played by a variety of teams. Cause again, you, for the most part, people are drafting players, um, across the league, but it's also, um, a lot more individualized. Right. So my fandom isn't just about uh, whether my team wins. Right. But but whether a person I have chosen, an athlete I have chosen to be on my fantasy sports team, um, you know, whether they do something good, they score points, they make a great tackle and that then garners points for me. So there's this sense among players, we argue, that they're actually um there's a, there's a heightened level of control in fantasy sports. Um, and in many ways, this can make it an even more sort of powerful way of demonstrated, demonstrating masculinity. Um, so we highlight a number of traits that are um, really sort of central to this. Uh, one is the sort of ex- exercising the sense of control um, over their, their fan experience. Um, that by picking up a particular player, uh, making a good trade, that that as a as a player and and a fan, I'm in control of that experience in a way that I'm not when I'm just watching my favorite sports team play. I haven't played a role in that, um, and that means also then the sense of accomplishment seems more personal and direct uh, to our players, and this was. Um, much more common thing we heard from the men um, that they, they felt they got a sense of accomplishment from this activity. Um, there's also a sort of premium on knowledge, sports knowledge. Um, and as Rebecca notes, you know, this is something because we associate sports with men and boys more so than women and girls. Uh, it's something that men are disproportionately likely to have and to have had developed throughout their lives. Um, so men really place an emphasis on um, their success as, as being tied to um, their sports knowledge. Um, and they sort of explain away losses uh, by, you know, bad luck. Uh, women are actually much more likely to admit that they don't have a whole lot of control over what happens. Yes, they've picked up particular athletes uh, in their draft or off off a trade, but at the end of the day, they can't control what happens in that real game any more than they could if they were just watching it and not as a fantasy sports participant. Um, And so these become really important elements of sort of fantasy sports fandom um, in a way that we don't necessarily see in um, your average uh, sports fandom. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, yeah. And I want to go ahead and talk about a term that you use in the book that I really like. Uh, you call it jock masculinity, which kind of goes with the, the sports knowledge part and also the, the performing masculinity aspect of fantasy sports. So you argue that fantasy sports allows men to perform and accomplish this jock masculinity. So what is this term and how do men use fantasy sports to accomplish this? Uh, sure. So um, so Jock's stasculinity, it's a tough word to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it was one of, it's one of these things that, um, 
that when we were analyzing the data, we saw a lot of evidence that um, there were these kind of dimensions, these constellation of dimensions that um, we were seeing that were coming together in terms of how men were talking about their fantasy sports experience and that related to masculinity. And so we kind of talk about it in the book as Jock's masculinity as having three dimensions. And all of these dimensions are combined and support one and build upon one another. So they're not really separate. They kind of all come together to form this overarching kind of um, variant of masculinity or means of performing masculinity. And so the first dimension is very much... uh, uh, similar to what um, Connell kind of talks about as hegemonic masculinity. Um, and so this is a type of masculinity that really centers on one-upmanship, on competition, on athleticism, on aggression. And uh, and so the ways that this kind of is manifested in fantasy sports is that when um, men are talking about their fantasy sports experience and why they play fantasy sports, they're really often focusing on fantasy sports as a way to compete with one another and to beat them and to dominate over them. Um, And so even though they're not, you know, putting on a pair of cleats and getting on a field of play like they might have in the past um, when they were younger um, uh, or, you know, more able to in terms of time, they're still kind of using fantasy sports as a way to be, um, to exhibit aggression against one another, to, uh, to dominate others, uh, to demonstrate that they are kind of highly competitive individuals. So that's one kind of dimension. A second dimension we talk about is that is more of a kind of a cerebral masculinity. Um, And so this is the aspect of fantasy sports that involves um, being strategic, um, being technologically savvy, being rational, being really adept at statistics. Um, And it's a type of masculinity that is associated with socioeconomic power, with um, intellectual prowess with nerdiness even. And so a lot of what the men said to illustrate with terms of fantasy sports is that one of the things they love about fantasy sports is that it's a, that they get to compile all of these statistics on all these different fan, on all these real life players, um, and teams, and they get to digest that and they get to analyze it and they make their spreadsheets, um, to figure out who's the best person to draft or whether it's time to drop that player and pick up another one. And they're also approaching the game, in really strategic and depersonalized ways. And so one of the difference that we found in terms of how men and women in particular kind of construct teams and think about players is that while both men and women do emphasize picking players that are statistically going to give them the best chance at winning in their fantasy sports matchups, women much more so than men also consider other factors that we would say have nothing to do with performance per se, like whether or not someone is accused of raping somebody or whether or not somebody is a good person off the field of play um, or those sorts of things where the men really say, nope, um, the most important thing about fantasy sports is winning. And the way I'm going to do that is by using my my smarts, my strategy, my ability to analyze statistics to win. And this is kind of that cerebral aspect of jockstasculinity that we talk about in the book. And then the last dimension is kind of more of a boyhood masculinity. Um, and so a lot of what fantasy sports talk about is that they like playing, uh, fantasy sports players talk about is that they like playing because it's a way to get, be able to to role play a dream of theirs as a child, to be a general manager of a sports team or a coach or to be highly involved. And so they're using fantasy sports as kind of a way to harken back to childhood. Um, Oftentimes they banter with one another in ways that are very childish. Um, And so they're using that um, um, as a way to kind of escape from adult responsibilities and adult interactions Um, in particular men often talk about using fantasy sports as a way to escape from work or escape from family responsibilities. And so we talk about this, the constellation of these kind of three elements of masculinity, like a hegemonic masculinity, a cerebral masculinity, a boyhood masculinity, as all kind of coming together in various ways for the players and actually um, giving them opportunities to kind of assert their manhood and to reinforce their manhood in a way that might not be accessible to them in other ways as they, again, are um, men who are aging and who are uh, oftentimes disconnected from other ways of asserting their masculinity like they had in the past by actually playing a sport, for instance. And so it becomes this really potent way for men to to demonstrate their masculinity and more potent than regular fandom as Sarah kind of suggested, because they're 
achievements are more directly tied to the achievements of these real life professional athletes. And so um, this masculinity is really interesting because it's super potent and powerful for these men, but it's also pretty accessible, at least for these highly educated professional players who have the time and the resources to be able to delve into fantasy sports. Yeah. So would you consider this or talk a little bit about um, how this is a form of hybrid masculinity uh, or of fantasy sports as a way to gain vicarious masculinity? Uh, Do these concepts connect to this um, at all? Yeah, sure. So uh, Tristan Bridges and CJ Pascal have written a lot about hybrid masculinities. And, you know, the thing about hybrid masculinities is what they do is they kind of blend hegemonic masculinity with some elements of uh, marginalized or subordinated masculinities, and sometimes even components of femininity. And so this type of masculinity, and oftentimes expressions of of, of hybrid masculinities are very much limited to those who already are more powerful, right? Um, Because they have, so white heterosexual men who have high economic power often are those that are able to to take on these hybrid masculinities because they have the power that allows to embrace non-hegemonic ideals without suffering a lot of the negative ramifications of that. And so what we're arguing with masculinity is that it is in a lot of ways a hybrid masculinity because there is this embrace of hegemonic masculine traits, right? So there's a lot of this focus on dominance again and on control and aggression and one-upmanship and competition. But there's also this nerdy quality, right? That aligns it more with some subordinated masculinities, which again, when we think of that nerd, um, we often, we might think of some elements of power, um, like, like a Bill Gates, right, who has a lot of economic power, and people might aspire to be him. But we don't think of them as physically dominant or aggressive, right, like we do with the hegemonic male. And so, it is a, a form of hybrid masculinity in that sense where there are these he- hegemonic qualities, but there's also this highly nerdy quality um, that are kind of merged together um, and enable men who, again, previously might not have been able to be seen as this kind of aggressive, tough man because they were not very athletic, um, or maybe now they can't because they're injured or, um, or older. And this allows them to to achieve this kind of masculinity um, through a different way, through knowing the sports statistics and through uh, being able to an- analyze sports in this kind of more nerdy way. And then this then does tie it to this idea of vicarious masculinity because um, they're, again, connecting real-life athlete successes to their own in direct ways and gaining masculinity points for doing so, right? So by being that person who is really adept at fantasy sports, men are signaling in some ways that they are just like those guys on the field. They're real men who are able to um, to be dominant and to win and to compete at a high level, even though they themselves aren't the ones actually playing the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I want to jump to um, something you mentioned um, in answering the question is um, time and how socioeconomic status uh, and privilege and um, sort of access to the, the higher knowledge that you need to do statistics or have time to really sit down and um, engage with fantasy sports. So how is participation in fantasy sports related to time and work and encroaching on like leisure time and household and their work lives? I, I'm really interested in because it sounds like fantasy sports takes a lot of time. So how do, how do men incorporate this and how do they justify taking this time away from other aspects of their life? I'll go ahead and jump in there. Um, and so I think one thing that's really important to remember, as Rebecca you know, mentioned, is that uh, people who play fantasy sports are disproportionately you know, highly educated professionals. Um, and that means that they're in the types of occupations which give them a lot more um, control over their time use, a lot more flexibility. Um, it's sort of, in some ways, you know, this is particularly timely to be talking about it, right? But the types of people who have jobs that allow them to work from home um, when we need to be out of our offices. Um, But just in general, they have more freedom throughout the day. And so 
we heard a lot from our respondents about how their fantasy sports play is, we'll say, integrated into their their work days even, right? That while the vast majority claimed at least that it wasn't distracting, um, that it wasn't taking time away from work, they uh, often pointed out to us that they would do it during downtimes, um, you know, so they might, if they work in a lab, for example, uh, have a downtime while something, you know, experiments running or something, um, while they were waiting on a call and they would maybe, you know, do their, do some, some rostering or read some articles. And it's also important to remember that, um, this requires technology and access to it. And so this is obviously much easier for people who spend their day sitting in front of a computer or at least with easy access to their, um, their phones. So that was a, a really important piece of how, class played into um, the fantasy sports story and and people's time use around it. Um, Now, in terms of uh, the the sort of work family side of things, you know, we did see that men um, were more likely than women to uh, both use it as an escape from family and report things that indicated that they were perhaps working on their fantasy sports play, whether that was, um, you know, manipulating their lineups or watching games and monitoring things at times when um, women might be likely to be, um, you know, having responsibilities for childcare. And there were even a few men who were like, wow, you know, I don't know what I, what I do if I, you know, had to be putting my kids to bed or or something like that. Um, So there was this kind of interesting way in which, time use was, was embedded with this. And, and while there certainly are some people who spend a lot of time, um, you know, this was true even for people who reported not spending a, you know, inordinate amount of time in terms of total number of hours on fantasy sports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I also want to talk um, about women's participation in fantasy sports. You've talked a lot about men's participation, but of course, you also had women in your study. Um, So why do men think that women are less likely to play fantasy sports? And can you talk just in general about uh, women's participation in fantasy sports? Uh, Sure. So I'll tackle the first part about kind of these abstract views about why women don't play. Mm-hmm. And then Sarah can pick up and talk about what women's experiences who did play actually were. Um, so just kind of as background, uh, as we kind of alluded to before, uh, fantasy sports are predominantly played by men. Um, so at the time when we collected our data, it was about 30% of players were women. What's kind of interesting is that now it's a lower percentage. So in 2019, I, I just looked up the figures. It's now about 19% of players are women. So there's actually a declining percentage of fantasy sports players who are women, which is pretty interesting in and of itself. Um, but when we asked um, the players uh, why they think women are less likely to play, what was interesting, both men and women kind of reflected similar ideas, right? So um, in terms of thinking about it, they um, held very stereotypical ideas of what men and women are and what they should be. Um, and they also had very um, dichotomous views of men and women as vastly different and opposed to one another. And so when they were talking about why in general women don't play, they would often say that women in general don't find real sports important. Um, they don't find them interesting. Women don't have knowledge or experience playing with sports. And so they had a very gendered vision of um, athletic participation and a very gendered vision of sports fandom. Um, They also would then assert that women, instead of being interested and knowledgeable of sports, were more interested in other sorts of obligations that were highly feminine. So they would talk a lot about like, you know, women were more interested in decorating or shopping or cooking or raising their kids or kind of nurturing others in various ways. Um, uh, Sometimes they talked about things like women were into book clubs um, and reading and not into this kind of um, these other sorts of pursuits. And related to that is that there was often a discussion that women in general are not very competitive. And so their interests would lie in things that were non-competitive pursuits like 
a book club rather than playing in a comp- um, a competitive game like fantasy sports. Um, and they often would say again that women were not very statistically oriented, that women and men are different. Men are strategic and statistical and smart, um, and women weren't. Um, and that's why they weren't interested in playing fantasy sports. Um, and so what's interesting is when we, when we analyze these abstract views of why women and men were not, why women weren't playing fantasy sports um, as much as men, what we found is that they, both men and women would often reduce um, these decisions to not play as individual preferences that were biologically rooted, that naturally men and women were different. And therefore they chose to not participate um, because they didn't want to. Um, and what that ignores, obviously, is that a lot of these decisions and interests are structurally determined, right? So women, what the, the respondents would often say, women are just interested in tending to their families and not having hobbies like this, where in reality, women are pushed into having to do family responsibilities. And that's why they're not, um, and not so much of this unconstrained choice um, that is the way the players often framed women's non-participation. And then also women often can't play because they're not asked to join leagues um, as much, you know, so when men have open slots in their fantasy sports reason leagues for one reason or another, they assume women aren't interested in playing, right. And therefore they don't ask them to play. So it's oftentimes hard for women to even who have an interest and a predisposition or whatever to join, to be able to join a league. So in terms of these abstract views, um, in terms of why we we found that um, women were less, the views of why women were less likely to play, we often see stuff that you would expect that women aren't playing because they're not interested in sports, because they have other more feminine pursuits, because they're not competitive, they're not statistically oriented, and because they just really want to stay home and tend to their families, right? And so that's what we heard a lot of about. Um, and then, so these kind of abstract views in a lot of ways frame uh, the way that women who do play actually um, experience the hobby. And so Sarah can talk more about that now. Yeah. And, um, and I think the important point to, to also underscore, as Rebecca notes, right, they, there's all these sort of stereotypical and abstract ideas of what women like or want or are good at. Um, and then women who do play, right, confront not only those abstract views, but also this context that we've been talking about that emphasizes competition and dominance and um, and winning that isn't just about individual men's behaviors, but it's that um, that becomes the institutionalized frame for what a fantasy sports player does and is looks like, right? So that the entire context is um, masculinized. Um, and so women, um, you know, sort of confront this, and one of the first things this means, much like uh, what you know, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, you know, taught us decades ago about the experiences of tokens, is that um, you know women um, are highly visible, right? Uh, sometimes men, you know, directly remark at their sex, their gender, their minority status, right? Like, oh, you know, you're such a girl, or just pointing out that they're women. Um, they're also they also face um, scrutiny. Um, uh, and they get the sense that men use a different set of standards to judge their behavior, um, and their attitudes than they, than they would for players who are men. Um, so we had some, you know, respondents say, you know, it felt like every move I made, you know, if I drop somebody, if I pick somebody up, um, people looked at it differently. Um, and there's this great, um, quote, you know, where a woman talks about how I feel like when I do things, you know, people look at it differently. They scrutinize it. And if I was a man, you know, um, it would be like, oh, that's so interesting. I wonder what made him choose that player, right? Maybe he knows something that I don't, right? But as a woman, when I do that, that's a strange pick um, or something that maybe doubts, uh, cast doubt on um, her confidence. Um, and while we didn't see a lot of examples of really overt and hostile sexism um, in uh, everyday play. And I think it's important to note that most players, um, we talk about how women experience their fantasy sports play. Most people are playing with known others. And so those experiences did mean that, that we saw a, a lower reported level of really hostile sexism outside of the context of, say, anonymous fantasy sports 
boards and chat rooms where there was a lot more of that. Um, but some women did talk about, you know, um, men, you know, being kind of jerks. Um, uh, and, you know, again, like I said, public forums, definitely much more than others. Um, sometimes what happened in contexts in leagues where people were playing with family and friends and, um, was that women felt like they actually experienced what, what might be akin to benevolent sexism. That is like protection from the most, um, the worst of the smack talking, which was one of the behaviors that men, interactional behaviors that men did to sort of do masculinity in this context, that women were often protected from that. Um, uh, and, you know, we argue that known others might feel the need to kind of um, shield women in ways that strangers don't. Um, but in shielding women, again, they're also being positioned as um, women and not just as players, right? That does kind of highlight one's um, gender in this context. Um, women also reported kind of um, being looked, looked down upon, um, being seen as easy wins, right? So guys sometimes joking like, hey, you know, can I get in that league of yours that's predominantly women or all women, um, you know, because basically I'd like to win and I'm assuming it's going to be easier. Um, sometimes women um, were met with uh, condescension or uninvited assistance um, that they got the sense that the men they played with um, thought that they weren't as smart, that they needed more assistance, that they didn't know sports as well. Again, reflecting this larger frame that suggests that men are the ones who are knowledgeable in this context. Um, and then there's a lot of um, uh, sort of reflection on the sense that women might be more relationship driven than men. Um, so uh, sometimes this looked like women being accused of drafting people based on uh, romantic desire. That is, you know, drafting Tom Brady because, you know, he's cute as opposed to the fact that, you know, he's an outstanding quarterback. Um the presumption that women would uh, put their relationships over their competition, uh, the sense of competition, so that in a given week, you're often put most, a lot of leagues are structured that you're head to head with um, another team in a given week. And the assumption that if the woman was playing against her closest friend, uh, she might not try as hard, right? Um, that they wouldn't want to beat each other. Um, and then, um, Sometimes this, this relational um, kind of element was the suggestion that women were playing fantasy sports like kind of as a dating service. They weren't really interested in playing fantasy sports or in the sports aspect of it. They were there to meet men. Um, and then also sometimes a, you know, lots of um, assessment when women won, right? This was often met with um, uh, um, hesitation by men either, you know, really disappointed men being really disappointed that they had lost to a woman um, or, you know, because of that, some explaining away of women's success. And one big way that women's success was explained away was on the presumption that, again, because fantasy sports are virtual and we're not engaging in these physical behaviors that people are watching us do as on a field of play, that when women won, it was because their husbands or their boyfriends were actually uh, doing, playing fantasy sports for them, making their roster decisions, making their, um, you know, setting their lineups uh, and things like that. It sounds like there's really interesting ties here um, to things like social capital and social networks, as well as exclusionary practices, whether that's overt or, or covert, and then also sexuality. Like that, I, it's an interesting uh, comment you made about, oh, women choose Tom Brady because he's cute. Like that's, that's such a, uh, an integral part of like women and their presumed interests. And, um, are there any ties there to like homophobia? Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there clearly is clearly a very sort of heterosexualized assumption yeah. built in. Um, and, and, and for sure, you know, I don't, we didn't hear, a lot of um, homophobic comments necessarily, but a lot of, um, you know, men's posturing with other men, as we know, you know, throughout the masculinity literature, and we see it here too, that men's posturing with other men 
um, often invokes um, femininity and homophobia, right? This gendered homophobia. Um, so when men were kind of trash talking with other men, um, they might refer to those men as girls, or, right? So there, a lot of this is kind of fundamentally heterosexualized. And we see it here as an example um, in, in sort of women's presumed motives um, and behaviors are driven by this assumption or just couched in this assumption that um, these women are heterosexual. Um, and we also do make the argument, much as um, we noted um, with men and Becky when she was talking about sort of hybrid masculinities and, and who is in a position to integrate uh, in that case, you know, elements of marginalized masculinities, that it requires a certain status to do that. Another point we make um, is that when we do see women kind of pushing against these assumptions about what it means to be a woman in this arena, sort of claiming um, what, what you might call uh, elements of uh, transformative agency, right? Like claiming like, yeah, I'm a woman and I'm good and just sort of get used to it. That in this was a case in which um, women's presumed heterosexuality could aid them in making that argument, right? That it was women who were white and um, upper middle class and highly educated uh, and had at least presumed to be heterosexual that were in a better position actually to make some of the claims that might transform the gender order in the space. Yeah, sure, sure. So before we wrap up, I, I want to hear from both of you um, because I think you'll have interesting perspectives that, that might be very different. Um, what surprised you most about your research findings? We're both silent. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that um, for me, you know, I, I think that what was interesting was that, that how much, um, how much men and women for that, for that matter, were pretty um, silent on a lot of the issues that we saw really apparent in the, um, when we were analyzing the data, meaning that we talk about how gender is basically so pervasive in the space and also some um, race and class dimensions as well. And there was not much discussion of that, you know, like, so while it was kind of like for Sarah and I, like, you know, you know, really highlighted, very evident as we were looking through this when they're talking about various things that they're really talking about gendered power in various ways or talking about kind of um, class privilege um, that players, um, and again, keep in mind that these are players who are very highly educated for the most part are, you know, have, you know, have gone to college, have probably taken courses on stuff related to the stuff, um, some of whom were college professors themselves, and they were pretty much um, not you know, that these kind of things that seem so apparent to us were pretty much invisible. So it kind of speaks to like, to me, like how powerful kind of these dimensions of social inequality are in the space, but also how invisible they are to those that are Im immersed in it. So to me, I think I was expecting a little bit more, um, maybe especially from women saying, hey, yeah, it's um, a real problem being women, it's a highly sexist space, blah, blah, blah. Um, but what happened instead is sometimes women would say, yep, nope, there's, you know, everything's great, I'm treated as equal. And then they would have a litany of examples of the ways that they're underestimated or the ways that they're made to feel lesser um, or the ways that they're, um, that they're, they have like these kind of exclusionary practices that they're experiencing. And, and, you know, um, and so there's this kind of this ability to, or, you know, among men saying, I'm not sexist, but was this kind of very common phrase, you know, where there is be this kind of espousing of sexist values or opinions and, and then not really acknowledging um, in any real way that what that actually means. So to me, I think that was surprising. I think I was expecting a little bit more kind of awareness maybe of some of the, the, the dimensions that we talk about in the book. And I'll just, mine is somewhat similar, um, but but also a little bit different. Um, and I, I'll say that I can't say I was surprised um, as somebody, you know, who's made a career out of studying gender. Um, but I do think that what's interesting, particularly about this, is there are so many possibilities in this realm um, for, for 
I don't want to say for this not to happen, but that's the best phrase I can come up with, right? For, for there to be something different about how gender is manifest and how gender inequality is reproduced, right? We're, we're not in fantasy sports. Men and women are, or at least have the potential to be playing um, against one another or with one another um, in a way that we don't see in, you know, uh, traditional sports where they're largely sex segregated. Um, and there's the potential to be anonymous. I mean, there's just sort of all these possibilities. And yet the sort of same patterns of um, gender inequality and marginalization of women in particular, while we do see a little bit of opening up about what masculinity could look like for men, um, we don't see quite as much of that for women except at the margins. And I think that's, that's a really powerful statement about how institutionalized current gender regimes are um, in all aspects of life. Absolutely. And given that gender is so tied to sports in general, I, I, I imagine that these patterns are prevalent in other aspects of um, sports engagement, like selling sports mem- memorabilia um, or, you know, following teams. So I'm interested in learning more about that. But so we have taken up a lot of your time today. um, But my final question for you both is what are you working on now or next? Uh, Yeah, so um, I recently kind of um, launched a new research project where I'm uh, tying together some more directly some of my interest in leisure and sports with my interests um, on women and poverty. And so what I'm currently working on is how um, low-income women and their families kind of use and think about their leisure times and the constraints and opportunities they encounter in their everyday lives to even have free time or um, and to um, their ability to use it in, in, in the ways that they might want to um, and how this might connect to their overall well-being and to... Um, to their ability to build social capital. So I'm also kind of interested in how and whether they use local neighborhood organizations to, um, and to help connect them to resources they might need, like tangible resources, but also connect them to other individuals who then can be a source of enjoyment in their free time and things like that. So that's kind of what I'm looking at right now. Um, and I, so my, um, my academic appointment now is 100% administrative, so I spend a little bit less time on research than uh, maybe I'd like to, or than than um, than most folks. But I do have an ongoing project um, as part of Clemson's um, NSF Advance Grant, um, which, for those who aren't familiar, um, is a National Science Foundation grant program that targets uh, issues of gender inequality and increasingly um, issues of race uh, and other sort of marginalized faculty groups, um, particularly in STEM fields. And uh, the focus of our institutions, it's, it's an institutional transformation grant. So the goal is to, to make change at your institution around issues of gender and race in the faculty. Um, and one of the Foci of our grant project is on faculty time use. And so I am the social science research co-director uh, and doing some work gathering um, time diaries on how faculty members uh, use their time throughout the work week and including the weekend, which is not something that we have much data on. So um, potentially there is some overlap there in that we are collecting data on how people use their time 24 hours a day for an entire week. And so we're capturing not just working time, but um, child care, family time, and leisure time as well. Sounds like interesting and very important projects, especially during this time where a lot of people are at home and um, experiencing a difference in their time use. Um, and also, where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book? Uh, yeah, so... Um... My so obviously the a lot of the information for the book can be found on Temple University's uh, website. So um, that's a good place to go to get information on actually purchasing the book. Um, more information about me um, uh, can be found if on my website, which you can be located from Lafayette College's Anthropology and Sociology page. Um, and so my website um, 
um, can provide additional information about my research and also some of the other publications that have come out of this research project. Great. I would say uh, similarly, um, you could find me uh, on a, a faculty page on Clemson's website uh, just by searching my name or linking through the Sociology, Anthropology, and Criminal Justice Department. And then uh, Rebecca and I are also both on Twitter. Great. Yeah, I'll include your Twitter handles in the post when we put up this podcast so listeners can um, find you and learn more. So again, this has been an interview with Dr. Rebecca Kassain and Dr. Sarah Winslow. I want to thank you again, um, both of you again, for being on the show today. And I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Christina.